Thanks, Justin. Good morning. Praise the Lord and thank you for your faithfulness. And um, today as we pray, I want to ask you to help me uh, pray for Jack Taylor. Jack is in uh, a very, very weakened condition. It's difficult for him to move around at all. And um, he just is asking us to pray for the Lord to touch him, the will of the Lord be done. But um, we'd love to keep Jack around. We'd love to have him continue to visit us year after year. So, but in order for that to happen, God needs to come through with a miraculous touch for Jack. And uh, I told him that we would be, be praying. I know that in our church there have been a lot of losses of loved ones, uh, a lot of sickness, struggles. It's, it's just a tough time right now. And uh, we want to ask you to just pray for those that are going through these difficulties, okay? Let's pray for the Lord's anointing on the message and his anointing for us to serve him well as we enter these, uh, this holiday season. There are opportunities that we have during the last six weeks of the year that we don't have any other time. And uh, this, is a good, this is a good time for us to pray and to be mindful not only of celebration but of what we celebrate and sharing the mission. Father, thank you for the privilege of coming to you in prayer today. Thank you for the strong presence of Jesus that we feel, the ministering help of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we worship you and we praise you. This is not about us it's not about our church, it's about you, and we want to please you by the way we worship and the way that we live. We pray for those that have suffered incredible loss. We pray for those whose loved ones are in difficult places, those that are fighting sickness and disease. We pray, Father, for Jack. We pray that you would touch him today by the healing power of Jesus Christ we ask that um, he would have a very strong sense, and Frida and Tim as well, that there'd be a very strong sense of the hand of God upon this man working in his behalf. And we commit him to your care. We know that you do all things well, and we trust you. So, Lord, we're, we're joining other congregations. Uh, our voices are joining a multitude of others that are praying for this man. And we're asking you to let this, the joy of Jesus be his strength and the presence of the Lord be his rear guard. Be with him. And we give you thanks and praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are moving a new, into a new era of King David's life. We've been following him as a young man, as a young adult. We saw him come into the kingdom uh, first over uh, part of Israel, then after seven years over all of Israel. When we get to him today, he's in his late 30s um, and and. God has given him such an incredible blessing. But I want to tell you, the name of the message today is The Blind Side. There's a couple of reasons for that. Um, first of all, we are in for a load of surprises as we start maturing in God's promise for our life. Did you know that? Do you know it's seldom, it's seldom like you think it's going to be? It's like marriage. My mom gave me a caution just before I got married, and she said, son, I'm going to tell you what I told your two brothers. 
She said, it was the same way with me. When you fall in love, you love them so much that you could just eat them alive. And she said, after a couple of years, you'll wonder why in the world didn't I? She said, but I'm telling you, you'll get through it. You'll get through it and then you'll return to that uh, realization that, that, that she's the best thing that could ever happen to you. I, I'm reminded of something that came from my sister-in-law. She said, you know, I've just begun to realize. She said, I was thinking the other day, going to bed early, not leaving home anymore, not going to parties, she said, my childhood punishments have become my old age goals. <laughs> she was saying, you see things differently. She said, but you've got to keep a good attitude about things. She said, I fell down the stairs and instead of talking about how old age is horrible, I, I decided to be optimistic. And so after falling down the stairs, I said, wow, I haven't moved that fast in years. <laughs> It's a little more complicated than that, though. It really is. As you move into maturity, and, and, and I'm talking about maturity, not just old age, but even as you move into the maturity of the promises of God, if you're not careful, you can become like 70% um, uh, of lottery jackpot winners. I don't know if you've read the statistic, but, you know, if we, we all say, you know, if, if we could just win the lottery, my problems would be over. A pastor friend of mine who belongs to a denomination that discourages gambling said he would grant absolution to anyone that won the lottery and paid the church off, you know. But I don't know if you know, 70% of the jackpot winners, I mean the big winners, 70% of them go bankrupt within three to five years, 70%. Um, the average gift um, is several million dollars. The largest has been 1.5 billion. And when you think about 1.5 billion, we, our minds don't comprehend how much money that is. In fact, you could spend, the average person with an average lifetime could spend $30,000 a day and never spend that much money. It, it's a trap, and I won't bore you with the details of why people go bankrupt. You say, well, hey, I'm willing to try it. I'm willing to try it. Well, there are, there are exceptions. 30% don't, and I'm not encouraging you to go play the lottery. I'm just saying you would not think that 70% would end up in worse shape than before winning the lottery. It's sort of like the blind side. That's where the message title comes from today. Um, when I was a a, a kid, um, I, I ended up, I, my, my domain became the defensive backfield because I was just, I was just so skinny and fast. I wasn't much good anywhere else. And thank you for not laughing. And, um, but I started on the line and I ended up at right guard and I will never forget coach Reese talking to us about how important the line was. And I ended up at right guard and he said, um, now you boys have a very, uh, right guard, right tackle in, in, uh, in, in the center. He said, you have a very important job. He says, you've got to 
to make a way. You've got to move with the runner. You've got to, you've got to, you're responsible for successful movement. And then he gave a speech to the left guard and the left tackle that made me want to switch sides. It was like a patriotic speech going to war. He said, you two guys, left guard, left tackle, he says, on you and you alone rests the responsibility for protecting the quarterback's blind side. And I didn't know what a blind side was. I thought we had a quarterback that maybe was blind in one eye. But you know what he was saying is when a quarterback you know, he's, he's facing the, the defensive line. And then when he takes the snap and goes back to the pocket, if he's a right-handed quarterback, he turns. Now it's opposite if he's left-handed, but if he's a right-handed quarterback, he turns. Now I'm right here. My job is to open, but he says, you guys are critical because he does not know what's coming from behind. He says, you are responsible not only to keep the man your opposition out, but you are responsible for protecting the quarterback from getting what blindsided. And uh, in fact, they made a movie a couple of years ago about it called the blind side. And um, if you, if you know anything about, you know, football linemen, left guard, left tackle are vitally important. If it's a right-handed quarterback, because that right-handed quarterback has no idea what's going on behind him and somebody has to protect him. Well, what happens is that we don't understand sometimes that we have blind sides in our walk with the Lord. I know that the Lord is our forward guard and he's our rear guard. He's all around us. I know angels are with us. I know that I'm not talking about a lack of the Lord's protection. I'm talking about a lack of our discernment. And 2 Samuel 7 is the passage we want to read today. Now, the story in Scripture we're talking about 2 Samuel 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. This story today covers five chapters and then also Psalm 51, which to me is, is uh, even though it's in the Old Testament, it, it shows us how well the Old Testament saints really understood the concept of grace and mercy. And they knew that it was coming in its fullness in Messiah. But they really, that prayer David prayed in Psalm 51 is just as modern and contemporary in its theology as anything we would pray today. But it says in the first two verses that I want to read, we're only going to read three verses out of this half dozen or so chapters. It says, after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. Now, you got to understand, no more enemies to pursue that we're pursuing. No, no more uncertainties that need to be settled. No, no pending rebellion, no civil war. He is settled in his palace and the Lord gave him rest. He said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. And then we know the story how David said, I want to build the Lord a house for himself. A few chapters later, that attitude of I'm set, I'm home free, I have arrived is still dominant in David's thinking. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. This is the time when kings go off to war. 
But David, for some reason, he wasn't, it wasn't a matter of age. It wasn't a, wasn't a matter of I'm too old to lead these armies. You know, I'll leave it to Joab. First of all, Joab was older than David was as far as we can tell. And, and David was really at the prime of his life late 30s, 40 years old. For those of you that think that's old, let me tell you, that's, that's the peak. That's the pinnacle in so many ways. It's when you ought to be going off to war instead of sending others to do the fighting. Now, the principal characters of the story are David, Nathan, Joab, Mephibosheth, Uriah, and Bathsheba. Now, here's the central truth. It is not enough to simply win victories. We must subsequently manage those victories. I'm here to tell you, David as a teenager did not understand all that was entailed in defeating Goliath. All he saw was, I need to bring this big boy down. But he did not know that that was just step one. There were spoils of war to be managed. There was a life to be managed. There were consequences to be managed. And the bigger your victories, the more compounding the consequences. And David knew nothing about managing the victories. Can I just pause here just a moment? Don't worry, I built in some let me pause here just a moment time in the message today. I don't, I, I'm, I'm not talking down to you, but I know not everybody will get this. But I pray that God will give you insight and you won't be as slow a learner as I have been through the years. When God begins to show himself strong and give you victories in your life, whatever the victory may be financial, it may be in relationships, it may be in your job, your business, your career, your ministry, it could go on and on and on. Whenever God begins to give you victory, there's a tendency when you begin to see the fulfillment of God's word in your life to either get distracted by doing things that are good but not best, or there's a tendency to just drop your guard. I, I say this with deep, profound remorse. Uh, several times I've been asked to serve as part of a committee for different districts in which I've served that had to do with dealing with moral or ethical failures. And of all the things we've had to deal with, I've told you this before, there's never been a time that somebody had just bottomed out and failed God when they bottomed out. Almost without exception, everyone that had a moral or ethical failure was at the top of their game. Their church had reached a success that it had never reached before. Every one of them had this one thing in common. They had reached a goal. They had reached the pinnacle of their whole ministry. Yet at the pinnacle of their ministry, they fell. It's the time when you would expect at least. But I'm here to tell you, loved ones, when you get to that point, two of the strongest principles that the enemy uses is to get you distracted into doing the wrong thing or get you to drop your guard. In other words, let me put it to you this way, and I pray that God will give you understanding. The further you go in your walk with God, the more successful you are in your walk with God, the more imperative it is that you learn the difference between good and best. Good and best. 
Good is exactly what it says. It's good. But the question is, is it the best? Is it what God has called you to do? My pastor used to say this, and I don't know of many statements. It's, it's with about five statements that I cherish as the most valuable statements that were given to me. He said, you must not be led by a burden. Well, he, he said it the other way. He said, you must learn to be led by the Spirit, not by a burden. There will always be things you are burdened for. There will always be things that need doing. There are always things that are worth your effort. But the question, is that what the Spirit is leading you to do? Because I found the hard way, loved ones, you cannot do everything. You cannot be everything. You cannot achieve everything. And some of the best servants of God I know have actually squandered their life, not through sin, but by trying to do everything and cover everything and be everything and be everywhere. You've got to be led not by your burdens, but by the Spirit. Now, it's okay to have a burden. You can pray for it. You can be involved somewhat. But that's different between being led, uh, being led by what your heart is breaking over and what the Spirit is telling you to do. Um, I, and I want to I be sure I'm not being misunderstood. Do good and seek God, but always be willing to step back and see, am I doing what God called me to do? Most of the time, the church has to make a decision not between spending their money on bad things or good things. That'd be a no-brainer. But a church has to decide what do we put our interest in? What do we put our, um, our resources in? This, 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 this. These are all worthy, but what is the Spirit saying to us? And if the Spirit directs you to this thing, don't worry about this thing over here. You can pray for it and you can bless it, but God will direct someone else to that. So what we find is that David spends the time after he comes to peace uh, in the kingdom. He spends his time pursuing noble goals. Some of them the Lord blessed and said, yes, that's good, go for it. And some of them, are you ready for this? Some of them God said, no, that's not my focus for you. Nathan said what any prophet would say. When David said, here I am sitting in my palace and the Lord's living in a tent, we've got to build a house for him. And Nathan, the prophet speaking for God uh, in his mind says, yes, God is with you and he'll bless anything that you do. But David would get a second message from Nathan. Nathan would be going about his business and the Lord would speak to him and said, this is not David's calling. This is not what I've purposed David to do. And God even says, you know, God said, David, it's good this was in your heart. But when have I ever asked for this? When have I ever lamented the fact that I live in a tent? He said, David, you are operating from a burden, not from the spirit using my language. And he said, I'll let you be a part of it. I'll even bless you for having a desire to do it. And as you read the story, you'll find out that David gave a fortune to the building of the temple. David gave most of his resources to the building of the temple. But God said, it's for your son to build, not for you, because of the path you've walked. You have blood on your hands. Now, it's not the kind of blood that Abigail warned David about. 
was not unjust blood. But God was saying, you, you have been a man who achieved what he achieved by war, and there's a time for war, but now the house being built will be a benefit of peace, and it will be your son that builds it. We've seen David in his youth. Let's go to the think it over part. He's growing in God and his promises. The last three weeks we've, been, uh, we've seen David begin to walk in the fulfillment of God's plan. Today we're looking at him at the peak of his kingdom power, just entering middle age. And while looking outward over his domain, he finds himself blindsided by an inward temptation he was not ready to face. Now, loved ones, let me give you one more warning. I know that we are made of different personalities and different perspectives, but David was a man who was always in perpetual motion. Now, don't get me wrong. We need to get up and get busy. We need to stay busy for the Lord. And, and those that are slow to move have real issues that they need to deal with. But I don't know that those who are slow to move have any more issues than those who have trouble standing still. Victorious high ground is tough to manage. And if you are like David, a man or, or a woman that is in perpetual motion, one of the most difficult things you will find is the times when God tells you to stand still and take a look and reevaluate what's going on. Now, what happens when God begins to fulfill his plan is that uh, good things can rule the day. You guys with me? Okay, we're on, we're on point two, pivotal moments. Good things rule the day. Chapter seven tells us that it was a time when rest had come and David was able to turn his mind to peaceful achievements. Uh, it was, uh, there, thank God for every day when rest comes. Chapter eight, thank God for every day when you can celebrate your victories, when you can extend your borders, when the team that works with you is honored. That's what happened in chapter eight. Now here's a man, after all these years of labor, he's resting. He wants to honor God. His victories are celebrated. His border is being extended. His team is being honored with him. In chapter nine, David does some wonderful things. He shows generosity and graciousness. And in chapter 10, it's a summary chapter. Things just kept getting better and better and better. I'm telling you, we're condensing it and we're spending less time on this than we did on David's trials and tribulations. But David is living the high life. And I'm not talking about Miller high life. I'm talking about the royal high life. Good is ruling the day. But listen to me. If you don't maintain your balance, if you don't maintain your perspective, that's why you need good people on your backside, guarding your blind side. That's why you need somebody that'll tell you the truth. A friend of mine said he was going home one day after one of his biggest critics in the church had said, that was a true message of God from a true man of God. And he thought, boy, this is a great victory. And on the way home, he said to his wife, his wife and kids were in the car. He said, I just wonder how many true men of God there really are. And his wife didn't look up from what she was doing. She said, probably one less than you figure. (laughs) 
I've done my time, David said. I have nothing to prove, David said. So he sent Joab out in charge of his army and as David is looking out from the roof of his palace, he sees a beautiful young woman, the bride of Uriah. They probably had not been married long because they had not had time in their relationship to have any children yet. And David sees this woman bathing. Now the interesting thing about it is she is she's bathing herself as part of a religious ritual. She was not doing anything wrong. She was not trying to be seductive to the king. She probably just wasn't using good sense. It was a it was a spring day. The weather was probably beautiful. That's the time when kings went to war. And so she said, well, I'll just use the outdoor pool. David sees her. He sends for her. He either seduces her or she felt, you know, you don't say no to the king. You know the story. We don't have to spend a lot of time there. Before you know it, they had a one-night stand, and David thinks, boy, this was bad, but it's over, only to find out that she is pregnant. Abortion was unthinkable in those days. Child sacrifice was not, but abortion was because they didn't have a medical procedure to do it that was safe. So David said, we've got to cover this. And David, and boy, let me back up. I want you to understand, I'm not saying, I'm not condoning abortion in any sense. I'm not saying today it's safe, so we ought to do that. You know, that's incredibly, incredibly wrong. That's not what I'm saying. And I still believe we need to continue to take a stand against abortion. The only thing I was trying to say is that David had very few options. And he sends for Uriah, gives him a pass to come home, but Uriah shows more character in the courtyard than David does in the king's palace. And Uriah says, your, your majesty, I thank you for this time at home, but I cannot go in and sleep with my wife when my men who have labored with me are unable to do the same thing. Now, whether you agree with them or not, or whether it was smart or not, or <coughs> that's not the point. The point is, he said, I can't do what my men are not allowed to do. I will not go into my wife. Well, that ruins everything because it's so far it's been close enough that if he goes into his wife, it could be construed to be his child. So David says, we're going to have to get him drunk. But even drunk, he showed more character than David and would not do it. And you know the story how that David sent a messenger and implicated his leading commanders. Uriah was sent on what was a very, very difficult mission and the men with him were ordered to withdraw. He was not ordered to withdraw, so he was standing alone and he died. The word comes back and David says, well, that's the fortunes of war. It happens to one, happens to another. You know, the name of the Lord be praised. And David said, well, she's a widow now. I'll bring her into my house and marry her. And it's still early enough that, you know, we can cover this. We can call it a premature birth. And, um, you know, it's like a guy on television show I was watching the other day found out he was born out of wedlock and his parents say, we were going to say that you were a premature baby, but you weighed 11 and a half pounds. <laughs> Whatever, it did not work. The result is that 
this bride is violated. Her family is offended. In fact, one of the reasons the rebellion of Absalom was as widespread as it was is that the family of Bathsheba was involved in the rebellion. They knew what had happened. And David's cover-up facilitated the rebellion against him. We'll talk about that on another Sunday. The, the throne was corrupted. And in a moment, that's a masterpiece. I preached about it so much, I've chosen not to make it a big part of this series. Da David had all power. David could have just said, yeah, I did it. And what are you going to do about it? There was no system of checks and balances except the king's reverence to God. And David had committed this sin, scholars tell us that probably for nearly a year, nearly a year, he covered up his sin and tried to live on both sides of the fence. Nathan knows that all David has to do is this and Nathan dies. So Nathan comes in masterfully and he tells the story about a man that had hundreds and hundreds of sheep and he had a guest coming in, but he was too cheap to kill one of his own sheep for a festival. So he takes the sheep belonging to his neighbor who had only one sheep. And David gets furious. You know what I found? Usually when people in church are furious about something, it's almost always because they found a cause that will cover their sin. Pastors do it too. Uh, the wrath of man doesn't work the righteousness of God. So I would tell you, be careful of anyone who operates out of anger and accusation and gossip. Because I'll tell you, nine times out of ten, there's something nefarious in their heart that they are allowing someone else's sin to cover. David got mad and said, the man that did this, he will die. That wasn't a capital offense. But David made it a capital offense. He said, you show me who did this and I will kill him. And Nathan, in his greatest moment, you are the man. You have done this. And that started repentance. And I encourage you, I, I preach from Psalm 51 by my count about eight times through the years. You don't need for me to count or preach through Psalm 51 again today. But I encourage you to go through that psalm of repentance. David says, this sin has affected me spiritually. It has broken my, my relationship with God in the sense of standing before him with innocent hands. He says, it has corrupted me emotionally. He says, I've lost my joy. I've lost everything that was worth living for. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. He says, you've broken my bones. David was sick physically over this sin. And Psalm 51 is a beautiful expression of David recognizing his sin and then David recognizing the grace and mercy of God that could forgive. But, but, there was an ensuing judgment. The baby would die. Family weakness, Nathan said, will prevail. Uh, you know, I listened to somebody preach a sermon about, you know, Saul was not a father, but David was a great father and God's trying to raise up fathers and he preached it from the life of David. He's got, he's got the right message, but the wrong characters. David was not a good father. David was not a good husband. 
David had amazing gifts, prophet, warrior, musician. I mean, it, 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 I mean, it's not many in our culture. He would have had Clint Eastwood make a movie about him and he would have won the country music awards. I mean, he's a phenomenal guy, but he did not do well with his children so far as we can tell. And he did not honor his wives as far as we could tell. So Nathan said, the God who has covered you and protected you is now going to expose your weakness, your blind side that you've ignored is going to be shown. And not only have you failed God because you could not control your passion, but you have not honored God by raising your children. And you, you say, well, is that a big deal? Yeah, that's why, that's why Eli was removed from the priesthood. One of the reasons is because he would not discipline his sons. He would not correct his sons. We're going to look and see the horrible sins that took place. And David did not deal with the sins of his children. That's why in our culture today, the idea of an absentee father is huge. And when we deal with abortion and things like that, we tend to think of, of the sin of the mothers, but the men need to step up. Women would not feel as destitute. Women would not feel as desperate if the men would step up and be the men they were supposed to be in these kind of relationships. And I think I heard mostly women say amen. <laughs> the baby dies now, even in the baby dying, we see God's grace. She gets pregnant again, and the baby's name was Solomon. But God said, you call him Solomon, I will call him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. God loved Solomon. And it was God's way of saying, I'm going to make up to you for this great loss. Now, that's what has occurred in these chapters. What are the Christian life lessons? I, I want to give them to you as succinctly yet as thoroughly as I can. Here's number one. Going way back to the beginning, true leaders understand the importance of legacy. This may seem like an odd lesson to teach, but the older you get, the more successful you get, the more important it is for you to narrow your focus on the battles God has given you, not the battles he's given to others. Do you know that battles and enemies are often left for the next generation? The great blessing of building the temple, God said, David, it's good that it's in your heart, but this is part of Solomon's plan. In fact, the Bible says that whenever Joshua led Israel into conquering the land, that there were some enemies that Joshua didn't conquer, not necessarily because Joshua failed. That could have been part of the equation, but God said every generation, these are my words, but it's the expression of what God said, every generation has to fight its own battles or they won't understand what brought them here. Uh, we, we, see, we see that in every realm of American society today and in no realm more important than the church. But we see uh, people that have not lived through the times and so they don't understand why the times were important. Um, I, I, a generation that does not have any connection to World War II does not understand how close the world was to a rule of Antichrist. 
And it was largely American patriotism that stopped that. But the further you are from that, the less you understand it. The farther we get from Vietnam, the less we understand what that war did to the American psyche and how our military personnel were used instead of being utilized in that war and not welcomed as heroes when they came home when they should have been. See, the further you get away from founding fathers, the more of a tendency you have to, re to read revisionist history so that you don't understand the price that was paid. You come up with a better way. It should have been done this way. But can I tell you a real spiritual statement? You weren't there. You weren't there. And we need to learn to honor the past. Now we need to honor the past without reversing the future, but we need to understand that God will leave battles. Every one of us, you read Hebrews 11, every one of those people mentioned in Hebrews 11 went to heaven without everything being fulfilled in their life because it was for next generation. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, they would not be made perfect without us. We're part of a process. We're part of a plan. And we want to leave the world better than when we came into it. We want to leave our children better off than we were. But we also want to prepare our children. We want to prepare the next generation of leaders. We want to prepare the next generation of Americans to fight for the right principles. And you can't live off of somebody else's victory. You've got to win your own victories. And remember, the victorious life's not only about victories, but about stewardship as well. Number two, if the enemy cannot defeat you in battle, and that became clear, no enemy could defeat David. If the enemy cannot defeat you in battle, he will try to keep you out of the battle. That's what happened with David. The battle that Joab went to was victorious battle. It was a, it was a positive outcome. The only thing wrong is that David should have been there. Whenever life begins to get either too rich or too empty, you have a tendency to want to stay back. Whenever the rebellion of Absalom was overthrown, David was so lamenting the loss of his son, which was understandable. But I want to tell you, I believe David was lamenting through guilt as much as he was through love. And his general said, David, you are, you are eviscerating your whole army. You're dishonoring the army because they have risked their lives, their families, their children for you. And all you're doing is crying for the rebel. David needed to understand that true leaders must leave a legacy and that if the enemy cannot defeat you in battle, he will surely try to keep you out of the battle. Let me say it one more time. There is a real danger in overworking. Becoming a workaholic is not the solution. There's a real danger in overworking, but there is an equally dangerous side to a lack of focus and purpose. You've got to find that balance. Now, here's number three. Bathsheba events don't occur in a vacuum. We need to understand that when a man or woman fails morally and ethically, when they, when they lose their anointing and their purpose in serving the church, it does not occur in a vacuum. 
We must truly seek to understand our own cycles, our own baggage, and our own tendencies. I want you to know that significant moments are usually the result of a series of choices and events and understand that we may be most vulnerable at the very peak of our success. When David saw Bathsheba, what was his response? Who is she? Who is that woman? That was the first turn in a wrong direction. Joseph gives us a pretty good indicator of what we should do in moments like that. Run. Run. Even if you have to leave your coat behind, run. You say, well, but we're New Testament now. I got the Holy Ghost living in me. Well, then why did Paul tell Timothy, flee? That means run away from. Flee youthful lusts. Uh, Loved ones, I'm going to say... I'm going to say this. I don't know of anybody. I've never met a pastor that I think that was more committed to the message of grace than I have been. I, I have, I, I, I lost a significant chunk of this church in the early days because I preached a work of grace and they made a statement, came to my office and visited me and says, you don't understand sin. You're telling us that God loves us and there's nothing we can do that'll separate him, uh, make him love us uh, more. There's nothing we can do to make him love us less. You are not a preacher of holiness. You are not a preacher of righteousness. We're leaving. And they did. I don't know of anybody, I don't know of any of my Assemblies of God friends that have paid more for a message of mercy and grace than I have. So loved ones, don't, don't sit there and say, you don't understand the grace of God. When I hear Joseph Prince and I hear people like that preaching who tell us that we need never repent, that we need never admit our wrong, we need never make restitution, I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to fix the abuse that I saw years ago, but if I may be so bold, they're doing it backwards and they're doing it wrong. I want to tell you, I don't think anybody understands how much God loves us any better than I do. I don't think anybody understands the grace and mercy of God any better than I do. But I tell you what I've learned through the years. When it's time to repent, repent hard. Repent hard. You say, well, if if God loves us, I don't need to repent hard. You need to repent hard for the same reason I need to repent hard. Whatever it was in me that brought me to that place of sin needs to be dealt with. Loved ones, when I sin, it's not a matter of God forgiving me. I understand his grace and mercy. What is going on is my tendency to go that way. Loved ones, I understand grace, but I also understand whenever something keeps circling, cycling in and out of our life, there's something wrong with us and it's not the grace of God. (coughs) You see, I'm trying to quit, Justin. Listen to David when he calls her to himself for sexual intercourse. Have you fulfilled your obligation of cleansing as described in the law of God? David, what are you thinking? You should have had some of your mighty men in the room next door that would come in and say, King, forgive me, I'm doing this in the name of the Lord. Come to your senses. 
You see, I'll tell you something else I've found. The more religious we are, the more we try to find an excuse, sometimes a religious excuse, that justifies the sin we're about to commit. Have you completed your ceremonial cleansing? Well, sure, that's what she was doing. The problem is that she was being cleansed for her husband, not for David. Loved ones, this is, this is a message burning on my heart. I, I, I know, and, 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 if, and if you have adopted a mindset that says, well, I do wrong, but pastor says God loves me and nothing I can do to make him love me less, you have totally raped my message. You have molested my message because not only have I never said that, I've never intended that. No, no, no. If there's something residual in our life that ought not be there, run hard to the altar. Repent till you're blue in the face. You say, Pastor, but I don't need to do that. God forgives me right away when I ask him. I know he does, but keep blubbering. Keep repenting hard because there is something in us. If it's a cycle, if it's something we keep repeating, loved ones I've learned from my own life, there's something in me that needs to be beaten out. That's not to minimize his blood or his cleansing. That's not to minimize his keeping grace. It's not him that's the problem, it's me. <coughs> and that's why I say repent hard. Don't let that thing go. You say, all right, I've dealt with it. Well, just every now and then, just remember it again. I'm not talking, I'm not talking about doubting the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice or his atonement. I'm not talking about insulting grace by saying it's not enough. I'm saying, understand this, Grace is enough. Mercy is enough. Righteousness is enough. We stand righteous before him. But do not trust your flesh. Not for a minute. Here's number four. Sin is seldom one-dimensional. Seldom is sin one-dimensional. In David's case, see, I, I used to think as a young kid growing up, I used to think, boy, if it wasn't for this, I'd be serving God pretty good. Or if it wasn't for this, I'd be serving God pretty good. But you know what I found out? I found out that everything that's broken in my life comes out of a soil of brokenness. David's, in David's case, adultery was linked to the betrayal of a friend, government corruption, and obstruction of justice. It wasn't just David having an urge one night or an itch that needed to be scratched. No, David showed the brokenness of his life and the willingness that he would embrace to satisfy the lust of the flesh. You say, where do we get stuff like that? Well, I think it's the culture. Do you know that Hollywood teaches us that if you can fall in love, it justifies the sin? I mean, that, that's the plot in every Hollywood scenario. Adultery might have occurred but we're in love. Unfaithfulness might have occurred, but we're in love. I really feel bad about it, but we're in love. And we have, we have become a society that will defend our wrong because of either we're in love or I think this is the better way or for a higher good. 
I'm going to say it one more time, and it will not come out of my mouth again until next time. But when the scripture says, um, without a vision, the people perish, but righteousness brings people to their senses. Again, that's a good translation, but a literal translation is this, when it says without a vision. See, we use that verse to try to teach churches how to have vision, but that's not what it's about, not even remotely. What it, what it says is this, when there is no supernatural word, vision from God, when there's no supernatural word embraced by a people, they become unrestrained. See, in America, we're trying to be fair and tolerant. We're trying to be inoffensive to everyone And the result is we say there is no thus saith the Lord. Therefore, what happens? People are without restraint. They live any way they want to in the name of freedom. He says, but when people understand that there's an absolute authority, then society comes in order. You say, Pastor, are you trying to say that Christianity, if everybody was a Christian, things would be better? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I've, I've thought for 40 years, if everybody in the church was a Christian, things would be better. <laughs> Except this church. I mean, everybody here is a Christian. If you don't understand how important sin can be, understand, have I, I've gone over, understand that when Adam and Eve sinned, do you understand it wasn't just that they had to start wearing clothes. The entire cosmos was shaken and everything went haywire. I tell you, God has been speaking to me and it's, it's about our word for the next year, but I, I will say this much right now. God said, we're entering a day when people need to understand that there is great consequence to righteousness or unrighteousness and that it's compounding. You know, like you hear of compounding interest. The consequence of righteousness, we're going to begin to see that it bears greater and greater and greater fruit. And the consequence of wickedness, we're going to see that it it bears greater and greater and greater damage. Here's the last thing. We'll close with this. Repentance is your best friend. Repentance is your best friend. Christians today are being taught that repentance is something you do once and it's over. Repentance is what the wicked need to do. But loved ones, I want to tell you as a, as a preacher that believes in the grace and mercy of God, I want you to know repentance is your best friend. Turning to God is your best friend. You say, well, I just don't want to overdo it. Which would you rather hear? Had you rather hear God say, it's okay, your sins are forgiven and have that burden lifted? Or do you rather hear him say, why haven't you dealt with what I put in your heart? Why haven't you yielded to my voice? Next week, we're going to see what happened to David's family. We're going to see that rebellion that took place. And I'll, I'll give you the end from the beginning. Two weeks from today, we're going to see the victory and the grace and the mercy of God prevail. 
I understand you're going to win. I understand I'm going to win. We're going to heaven. But I want to be sure that my life is a little bit of heaven all along the way. Father, we need you to help us because some of us, Lord, some of us may be holding to something. We're hiding behind it, thinking that the grace of God doesn't require us dealing with it. But Father, as, 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 surely, as surely as Aaron Rodgers gets plastered when his left tackle lets his guard down, when we let our guard down, we're going to get plastered because we all have a blind side. Father, we all have a tendency to think that a victory will solve our problems because we're just like 70% of the lottery winners in America. But Father, the, the greater our success, the more humble we should become. The more, the more prayerful we should become. The more watchful we should become. Lord, this, is, this coming year is going to be a year of fulfillment. We've had two years of testing. We've had two years of difficulty. And now the atmosphere is about to change. We thank you for that. But, oh, God, don't let us go through two years of testing and struggling and fighting only to fail in the year of fulfillment. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Please keep your heads bowed and eyes closed for just a moment. And I, I promise you, I'll, 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 let you I'll let you go within, within 90 seconds. But do this for me. I wonder how many of you are here. And there should be nobody looking around except uh, uh, except just me and maybe the security personnel for your safety. But I wonder how many are here. You'd say, Pastor, I, I love the Lord and I, I, I want to please him. But Pastor, I've got to admit, there's something in my life that does not belong there. And, and I know you're not asking me to come write it on a board, but I know I'm failing the Lord in some respects and I want to come clean today. I want to, I want to pray I want to pray a prayer of repentance before I fall. And I want to walk in holiness. Pastor, would you just pray for me that I'll be set free from this? Would you lift your hand just long enough for me to see it? You can put it right back down. Okay, okay, God bless you. My guess would be about a third of the congregation lifted their hands. And I want to tell you something. God can work all day long with people that will acknowledge their struggles. He'll work all day long with people that will acknowledge their struggles. Would you stand with me? I want to pray a blessing on those of you that need to go. And this is what I want to do. For those of you that lifted your hand and you say, oh, faster than they'll know I lifted my hand. Let me finish. You interrupted me. For those that lifted their hand or maybe you're here today and you're not sure of your relationship with Jesus and you'd like to come and be sure that your sins are forgiven and that you have eternal life. We're going to ask you to come as well. Or for those that just have a little bit of time and you'd say, Pastor, even if it's five minutes, I want to come and just wait in the presence of the Lord and worship him. See, we're, we all need to come if we can. Some of you need to go. I understand that. If you've got work or other obligations, I understand. But we want to open the altar. Before you come, I want to ask the ministry team to come and move into place. And this is what the ministry team is going to do.
Some of you may want to come and just wait in the presence of the Lord. But for those of you that need specific prayer, maybe you want to give your life to Jesus or maybe there's a sickness that you need prayer for or you need prayer for a specific need, the ministry teams are here and they're ready to pray with you. Otherwise, you might just want to come and as the worship team leads us into the presence of God, you may want to just let the glory of God sweep over your soul. But I want to tell you, I'm looking at these ministry teams. I don't know of anybody I trust more than these men and women up here to walk in confidence and to help you find what you need to find in God today. So please don't leave carrying your, your burden, your problems. Bring them to the altar and let these folks help you. Father, we ask for your grace. Whichever way when we leave, whether we turn and come to the altar or turn and go out of the building, let your grace cover us and help us to learn from mighty King David. And thank you for being the Lord who is greater than all of our sin. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here today. The altars are open for you. Please come and wait on the Lord for his kindness.